This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good afternoon, good evening, and maybe it's a good morning. Welcome to the Tuesday Drive Home with me, Anika Kalik. It's 4 p.m. here in London on Tuesday, the 1st of February. I'm joined in today's show with teacher educator Dr. Warren Kidd from the University of East London, and we will be talking about journeys into teaching, work life balance, and the four day week. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. It's so wonderful to have you listening into the drive home today. I hope your week has started off well. It's not quite midweek here yet, but we've got a fun-filled evening ahead with some back-to-back shows today, actually. Um, if you stay with us you from now, you can stay with us until 11pm. We've got Lucy, who's hosting the Twilight show at 6pm. We've got Libby, who's hosting the Late Show at 8pm. And finishing off with a late, late show at 10 p.m. with Rich. So today we will be discussing our journeys into teaching, work-life balance with some advice and tips, hopefully as well. And we will be trying to decide whether the four-day week is possible in educational establishments. So our my guest today is a friend and a colleague of six years, Dr. Warren Kidd. Warren, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you here and congratulations on also becoming a Teachers Talk radio host for the Friday Drive Home. Can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Hi, um, thanks for having me actually. Um, So I'm a teacher educator. I work at a university and I'm responsible for um, teacher education, initial teacher education in the secondary context mainly for the social sciences and the humanities. Um, I'm an author, a podcaster, um, and I also supervise um, doctoral students. Um, I'm I'm what is called an ethnographer, so I'm a a kind of qualitative researcher, as well as obviously a teacher. Thank you for that introduction. So before we actually get going um, on the discussions for the topics for today, I'm actually going to ask you a different question. I'm going to ask you, what type of student were you? Well, <laughs> well that, that just <laughs> opens up a whole can of worms, doesn't it? Right at the start of, um, <laughs> of the show. Um, I... Okay, so my experience of schooling, I'm 51 now. I was at school in the 70s and 80s. Um, yeah. My experience of schooling was not great, shall we say. Okay. So at the moment, I, I, I interview for PGCE students, for secondary PGCE students. And obviously, we are all individuals. We have our own kind of narratives. But at the same time, patterns often exist between groups of people over time. So when I meet trainee teachers, they're often motivated by different reasons. They are loving their subject and, you know, like really geeky and nerdy about their subject and they want to be a a subject expert. Or maybe they've had um, 
really very strong passionate successful role models from teachers in the past yeah sometimes they come from families of teachers actually and kind of feel that they've they've seen this job from the other side and want to contribute as well yeah but sometimes sometimes they come to interview not having been inspired by the teachers they've had but actually feeling that they could perhaps offer something more or different or maybe even better. Yeah. So I failed school the first time round. Um, I, I think I left. We, I was the last year of CSEs before they became GCSE. GCSEs. Right? Yeah. I'm that old. Um, <laughs> I, I had one CSE at the end of what we now call year 11, which was in art. Um, I had to go back. I had to retake. I, I certainly failed school. I think that school failed me as well. I think it was more yeah. complex. Um, I, I had the belief in me of a really passionate and enthusiastic teacher who, who kind of looked after me and, and kind of helped me through that, that sort of difficult period. Um, and actually, later in life, as a teacher as sometimes teachers are, yeah. um, I become um, diagnosed as dyslexic. Now, I don't think that that was the only explanation. I also yeah. don't think that defines me, but it certainly made things quite hard along the way. <laughs> no, I completely understand. Um, I, for me personally, I think I would be classified as the typical good student who was academically able and just kind of did the work that was given and didn't complain about anything um, and engaged with the lessons. I think my difference from who I am now to who I was before was I was very quiet. Now people seem to think, I, I still think I am very quiet, but lots of people would disagree with that. So I'm going to reserve judgment on that one. Um, but I was very quiet. I wasn't confident enough to speak up in class so if there were any questions directed my way or uh, if I had to share anything with the class it just for me it was very difficult to do so and I wouldn't offer so I could I may well have things absolutely correct on a piece of paper in front of me I wouldn't have the courage to kind of speak out and say those answers um, and actually that not having that confidence to speak up in a group setting in front of my peers with teachers or assessors or whoever in front of me carried on all the way until the final year of university. <laughs> so until I was 21. And the only reason it was knocked out of my system was because I had applied for teacher training. And one of my friends who had already had her interviews turned around and said, well, you know, in order to kind of get through that interview, there's a group task you need to do. There's a panel of three members of staff and they're going to put kind of like, you know, scenarios or things for you to discuss. And if you don't speak up, that will be an issue. And for someone who'd never kind of offered information to the classes or anything like that, that was a big thing for me. Um, but her advice was literally, if you're the first one to say how you, your opinion or your thoughts about something then you won't build it up in your head to be worse than what it normally is. And she that actually really helped because the minute they kind of lay down the foundation and said, right, we want you to discuss whatever it was, I was like, right, I've got an opinion. I'm going to share it now before I lose my nerve. And that was my first step. 
to actually being this version of who I am, who can go out and speak to pretty much anyone um, now with no kind of issues with it at all. So completely different, I guess, different students that we were, but with similar um, struggle, not similar struggle, but struggles within a classroom setting, which impacted kind of other skills that we were trying to develop. I think I think that's really interesting. It's certainly the case, isn't it, that becoming a teacher changes changes who we are. I yeah. mean, in the teaching that I do in secondary, um, we sometimes talk about learning to be a teacher as a process of of knowing, doing, but then becoming. And yeah. that idea that becoming sort of changes over time. Um, in fact, those narratives, you know, those stories that we have about how people become teachers, yeah. I, I, I think they're fascinating because because there isn't really a single route, is there? Because exactly. we are different, and that that's got to really add something to the the vibrancy of schools over yeah. a, a long period of time. And I think one of the key things or key takeaways from this is the fact that it really doesn't matter what you feel, uh, which because uh, I clearly thought it was a shortcoming that I wasn't able to kind of simply put my hand up and say, yeah, this is what I think in fear of, I don't know, being wrong. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was a fear there of being able to kind of um, speak up and share my opinions with people. And I guess a good takeaway from that is irrespective of where you think you are, in life, in your kind of social skills and how you um, interact with people, you can still be a teacher and it think you can still have some of these skills trained into you. I think for me, teacher training gave me the skills I needed to be able to kind of really <laughs> break all the boundaries and go off and be a better version of who I am. And without the PGCE, I don't think I would have ever overcome that kind of, uh, I would call it a stumbling block because it prevented some of the kind of the most basic tasks about when you go into the shops and you need to ask someone can you tell me where this is or can you tell me where that is for me that was a no-no I just did not do that <laughs> so it's actually the skills that it gives you and I think from the experience of teacher training for the last number of years you realize that people come from all walks of life from all backgrounds um, and it's teaching is not just for every um, it's not just for a particular type of person it really is for anyone and everyone that can engage young people and can and are passionate about the subject and can get them to learn and thrive within a classroom setting. I think um, just just for the record, while we're on air um, and therefore in the public domain, um, having known you for six years, I think we can conclusively say that you are no longer quiet. <laughs> I, I, I don't even think we need to kind of discuss that anymore. Um, I mean, it's also that difference, isn't it, between like learning and confidence and performance. Yeah. Um, so you know in my case I found formal qualification I've kind of made up for it since yeah. um but but education and learning was a was a big um a big part of my life um yeah. I mean without going into too much details I was working class child in a working class household living on a kind of council estate in South London um but my father was a trade unionist and he was in the RAF and yeah. he was a communist, um, but he was also, as a working class person, 
a racing cyclist and a jazz musician. So uh, kind of weird mixture, but there are connections. <laughs> so actually, you know, you know, I had education. I had, you yeah. know, book learning, as, as my dad would call it. Um, I, I certainly was able to develop an interest in the world. Yeah. But what becoming a, a teacher did for me through teachers who supported me was actually help me to actually change almost confidence, performance. What does it mean to stand in front of a class? Um, and you have the same problem when you go to university. You know, what yeah. does it mean to stand in front of a group of 300 people in a room that looks like a cinema all staring at you? It's the same kind of issue of confidence or performance. And it, and it really changes you. Yeah. And I, I, I still remember that first class that I taught as a trainee teacher. It was a year seven group. And I was so nervous. But I remember walking in, year sevens are small. Now I'm nearly five foot seven. So compared to me, they're very small. And actually, when you walk into a class who were seated at the time, they look even more smaller. And I honestly sat there and I said to myself, you seriously cannot be scared of, even though there's 30 of them, they're very small. And then the other, I guess the other thing that helps is you, if you do know your subject knowledge, you have your confidence from that aspect of it. Because from that first lesson, I kind of knew my stuff, but I also knew how to help teach and support these students, which actually made me realise that actually it's not that difficult. I think the challenge was more so when moving into... Um, higher education and not because of the students necessarily but those interviews that you do <laughs> for higher education it's not just about one and one talking about your strengths often they ask you to do presentations about a key issue or something important within your field and for me it was like right I have to go here and potentially to people who've been in this field a lot longer than me have a lot more knowledge and maybe are experts researchers and stuff to sit there and say this is what I think and someone said to me do you know what will they really be listening and I was and I took offense to that comment but actually that mindset made me so much more relaxed and I was like they're probably just thinking about their own workloads and things that they've got to do that I can just have a normal conversation and not feel the pressure. And it's the same for those big lectures with 300 odd students that you have. You sit there and you think, how many of them are actually listening? <laughs> no, I'm not trying to <laughs> say anything bad about our students. I know they will listen. But if it helps you get through the, the initial nerves, because it literally is just the first few seconds and then you're just well on your way and you can keep going. So it is really interesting to see how actually this profession has changed and shaped both of us as people, but just generally our, um, our lives and the skills that is actually given to both of us as well. Just while we're um, swapping anecdotes about first experiences with Year 7, um, this is not my first lesson with them, but this was my first ever Year 7 assembly yeah. Um, which I'd built myself up to do and really kind of over agonized over it when I was working in a school once. Um, and it was, it was, it was their first day. And I, I said, I would do a little, a little part of the assembly, yeah. but they gave me a series of, um, like housekeeping messages to read out to them. And um, quite helpfully, I told the whole of Year 7 that they would need to go up the stairs on the left, but down the stairs on the right. Now, just think about that. 
because that caused complete chaos in the school. For, I didn't do that deliberately. Complete chaos in the school for at least a fortnight after that assembly, um, to my um, horror. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I remember those days of single file on the left. That was all you heard in the corridors. I wonder how many schools still actually do say that. I, I guess health and safety, it makes sense. But single file on the left, the whole five years of secondary school, that's all you heard. Um, let's Please do text in or call in um, if you've got any interesting stories about you as a student or if you're a teacher now and how that compares or the skills that it gave to you. And I'll hopefully read out some uh, text messages that you've got if you're listening to this on playback by all means tweet us and we'll kind of have a conversation online as well um let's take a short ad break for the news and two minute tech and we will be right back with my guest dr warren kidd This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
In Wales, a cross-party Senate committee report has said 38% of councils do not have enough childcare for disabled children anywhere in their area. The government in Wales has said that work is underway to expand funding. Mags, a mother of a seven-year-old with autism, told BBC Politics Wales that multiple settings have told her that they could not provide the care he needed and she struggled to find funding. She said, I've got comments of this is not the right setting for him or this is not the right setup for your child. It is a constant struggle to feel like you are doing the best for your child. The Welsh Government said, We provide more than 1.5 million a year in support of children with additional needs within the childcare offer, and grants of up to 10,000 are available to make settings accessible. This year, we have also allocated 5 million for local authorities to create accessible play opportunities. In Scotland, the Education Secretary, Shirley Ann Somerville, has been asked to explain how exams can be held fairly, following the news that one in eight pupils were absent from school last week. There were 32,000 pupils absent from school for COVID-related reasons in Scotland on Wednesday. Nearly 2,500 teachers were also absent from work. Ms Somerville has said that she will provide extra support for pupils who have missed school, but exams will go ahead. National fives and hires in the spring will only be cancelled if COVID makes it impossible for pupils to gather in exam rooms. Larry Flanagan of the EIS Teachers Union said it was essential that students were treated fairly and not disadvantaged by COVID isolation. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, as we approach Safe Internet Day next week, it's the 8th of February, if you didn't know, I'm going to take a look at keeping yourself safe as a teacher. I'm not going to go into your digital footprint or how you use social media. That's been covered in your safeguarding training, no doubt, and should be common sense. There is, however, a real grey area when it comes to teachers and using their phones in school. Before a start, all schools should have a policy on mobile phones, and you should have read it. I suggest, if you're not sure what it is, then you find out. There is DFE guidance for searching, screening and confiscating for pupils. For staff, Policies in schools range from SLT having different rules to other staff so they can be contacted to phones must be switched off or on silence when pupils are present. Some are even introducing a smartwatch policy as they become increasingly more popular. The first step to keeping yourself safe is to make sure you know what is expected in your school as it's the individual schools that decide and there is no official guidance. The next step is a choice. 
Images, still or moving, are a great way to evidence work and to feedback to pupils. If your policy allows it, using your phone is the simplest way as it's always with you. To give a real example, a PE teacher at a match doesn't need to remember to take the school camera and probably has a better camera on their phone anyway. But here's the dilemma. Should teachers have pictures of children on their personal phones? Again, school policy will dictate this and parents will have signed a form saying they give permission or not, so you're covered to take the picture. But the question still stands, should it be done on a personal device? This is where I feel the need to keep ourselves safe lies. How long do you keep the images on your phone? Are they automatically backed up into your personal cloud? How do you transfer from your device to the school storage? What if your phone's lost or stolen? I'm not here to provide an answer. I just want you to think about keeping yourself safe. If you take images on a school device, you avoid all of these issues. It may be a little more effort, but in the rare event of an allegation, it's a lot simpler to investigate. Please think about your use of personal devices in school. And if your policy isn't keeping up with what you're doing, consider raising it. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2020 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. Um, Everyone, I'm loving the show so far. I hope you're loving the show so far too. Please do text or call in if you've got something to say, if you're listening live, or tweet us at TT Radio 2022 if you're listening to this on playback. So today we have Dr. Ron Kidd with us, a teacher education from the University of East London, a good friend of mine, and he's been talking about what he was like as a student and how that influenced him now as a teacher. So Warren, we're going to move into the next question of the day, which is why teacher training? And by all means, start from what things were like as a teacher when you trained as a teacher up until this point now. Thank you. Um, this answer could go on for some time, okay, <laughs> just to warn you. I, I think, I, I don't think I've ever had a plan in my career. Um, I was saying this to you the other day, actually. Yeah. You know, you get that question at the end of an interview sometimes, which used to just fill me with complete horror and paralysis, like kind of cognitive paralysis when um, someone would say to you, so, so, where do you see yourself in five years' time, you know? And I don't, I've never really had an answer to that question because I've made it, I've made it quite, you know, quite a focus of my career and I've been very lucky to pretty much always enjoy what I was doing at any one moment in time. What, I mean, that's amazing, okay? I really feel really privileged and really beneficial for that. Um, But at the same time, I think I had a series of events which slowly lead me down a teacher education route. But at any one given time, I didn't see that as happening until with hindsight, I can see this kind of, this culmination of experiences. Um, I mean, basically I've had, in my mind, I've had a, a portfolio career. So I've worked in one place doing a role, but at the same time, every one place I've worked in, I've accrued other little bits and bobs and pieces of interest, which have obviously been or often been outside of the actual role or outside of the institution. 
Yeah. But it's never been strategic. It's always been serendipity or opportunity or coincidence that's led me to take on certain things. Um, do you want some examples? Is that, is that going to yeah, be helpful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be really, really good. <laughs> so when I was... Okay, so I had the benefit when I was at what we used to call NQTs, okay? Yeah. Um, when, I was, when I was an NQT, I had the benefit of being supported by a strong subject association. Yeah. And, and I absolutely believe that the genuine, genuine value of subject associations for teachers is this huge meaningful resource for people yeah um so i i used to go to um, meetings of something that doesn't exist anymore but was was called at the time the ATSS the association of teachers of social science and i started going to meetings and then you know how you sort of say stuff and people <laughs> look at you and you think oh oh i think i've said the wrong thing well, it turned out I was possibly saying quite okay things, but but didn't know I was saying them. Again, that idea about being an imposter, you know, imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got asked if I would run a workshop, um, which freaked me out because, you know, there I am, an NQT, like struggling, like really struggling. And suddenly I've got these people who are just excellent asking me if I can share stuff with them yeah that's clearly gonna be a trap isn't it but actually it, <laughs> it turned out that it wasn't so I, I ran some workshops and then something happened um i i ran some workshops and got asked to write a chapter of a textbook which i oh yeah which i almost said no to um because i was an nqt you know it's, it so this be, was still in your first year yeah, it was right it? at the end right at the end of being an nqt so at the time i was teaching sociology there were a sort of dominant of sociology textbooks they were written by like just really amazing authors who had, had, had completely transformed in my mind what um a kind of an a-level textbook would look like yeah but there was there were gaps there were there it was time to move it on so I got invited to join a team of writers all of whom were teachers we were all teachers writing a textbook together led by just an amazing amazing man called Mark Kirby yeah. who we had this sort of mission that that's that's we would call it decolonize now actually that's that's um let's change the story that's Let's think about recent research. Let's think about um, British sociologists, not American or European ones. Let's think about issues of ethnicity and race and racism, as well as sort of gender and patriarchy. Let's really push the A-level textbook in terms of content. Yeah. So, okay, so workshops lead to textbooks. Textbooks Wait, lead... Wait, I'm going to pause you, Warren. How well, many years ago was this? Ah. Oh, well, I'm 51 now, so I've been in higher education for 10 years, and I've been, before that, um, I, was, um, I was a teacher for 13 years. So as a maths teacher, you can, you can now so do that, maths. Over 20 think, years ago? Yeah. Well, I think and I, you were already having those conversations about 
let's make a textbook which is more relevant and more inclusive. Yeah, but without and without yet we are term, still <laughs> no, I talk about it. We're talking about it, but without the term decolonize, we didn't use that term. But, yeah. but we were, you know, we were teaching. You know, we were t- we wanted to put in people like Bell Hooks, uh, who died only a couple of weeks ago, like an amazing, amazing um, black feminist in um, America. You know, we were trying to already work those sort of ideas into the textbooks all that all those years ago. Okay. So, so the workshop led to textbooks. Text.books led to opportunities to run National Inset. I spent quite a lot of time then as the vice president of the association, eventually running their kind of newsletter. And um, it just sort of opportunities led to opportunities. Yeah. And, then, and then I ended up teaching sociology in East London. I had a kind of a, a middle management role and the college I worked at, because I, I worked in sort of schools and colleges, the college I worked at restructured. And, and again, you know, I- inspirational people, that the principal of that college was someone that I hugely admired, um, like really admired their kind yeah. of vision and what they were doing for kind of East London and East London communities. And um, the college restructured, all our jobs were safe, but I didn't really like what the new restructure had become. Ah. So I wrote a letter of non-application um, where I, I basically wrote a letter asking if I could drop back from management to teaching yeah. because cause really I didn't want to do the new jobs. The new jobs, yeah. And what that triggered was a conversation about, well, what, what jobs would you like to do? And, and actually, this, you know, the college I was working at was very aspirational. It had real, real inspiration. It, it made some really interesting choices. And without knowing it, I took on what became a, a kind of a head of learning and teaching role. Yes. Which actually was really about running a, um, well, a, a thousands upon thousands of pound staffing cost action research project. Um, without knowing that this thing called Action Research existed at the time. And side note for our listeners, Action Research is what Warren loves. <laughs> so go on. That's where it the is. love began. It is. That's where exactly where the love began. So there I was, a teacher, working with other teachers collaboratively across the college as a whole, looking at how we might coach and mentor teachers to develop their own practice, looking yeah. at the mechanics of cross-subject practice, this was right at the time that the first assessment for learning literature came out. Now, like working in, yeah, so working inside the black box. So working in, um, in, in the, the college sector, because assessment for learning was funded within the schools sector, that literature wasn't, wasn't really widely available. Yeah. So, so suddenly we've got this exposure to these ideas which kind of resonate with the stuff that we think we're doing as practitioners. Yeah. We've got this, we won a, we won a highly recommended um, Beacon Award for this project in the end. We, we had, I had like 15 members of staff who had about five or six hours a week off of timetable oh, wow. to coach others. Like, how's that even possible? Just think <laughs> of the cost. Think of the cost of that. We ran um, fairs in the in the in the main foyer of the college where teachers would run like market stalls and swap ideas and resources with each other, and and all of that led me to thinking, well, hang on, 
this is teacher education, isn't yes. it, that I'm doing? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and then I made the step from the college to, to UEL, to University of East London. Oh, so University of East London is the first uh, university that you walked into for teacher education? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you've been here how long? I think it's 10 years this, this May. Interesting. Yeah. So I've only been there six years, so four years before me. But well, what about your journey? Because I think, yeah. was your journey different or was it the same? My journey was different, actually. Mm. Um, my journey was kind of stepping into the unknown at every single possible step. Although if you look at my CV or you look at me on paper, it looks like it's very um, well-planned, thought-out, strategic moves into in kind of like my career progression but the reality of that is and maybe that's what I say at interviews but the reality of that is that I kind of came into teaching because I didn't know I was good at it and one of my friends actually suggested what are you doing after your maths degree and I was like well what can I do and she said well I'm applying for teacher training have you thought about that because you already help out so many of us and so on and I thought okay I had been volunteering on the weekends anyway just I had always tried to support my younger brother. I didn't feel I was ever successful in that, by the way. So if you're listening, younger brother, I do apologise. However, I did support on the weekends in our local community. So I thought, well, I do have experience of this and why not apply for teaching? So it wasn't one of those things where we get trainees who come in and say, you know, this is what I always wanted to do and I had a lifelong passion of becoming a teacher. It was just a, okay, I can be a maths teacher did my training and that was fun I really enjoyed the research project side of it and kind of the academic side of it again um, and I liked kind of doing my research doing my reading and figuring things out um, and then I came in to my first school as an NQT and I also began a master's in teaching at the same time so simultaneously because I, I thought if I've already got the momentum going of doing research and reading while I'm uh, teaching, I might as well keep it up. So I know the timetable increases, but it, it will be better than kind of taking a few years, years out and then coming back into it where I would have lost the use of my, you know, uh, what's it called, holidays and stuff in reading and writing. Um, I started my master's projects and they were actually exploring, one was about literacy and maths, um, and kind of building up language and communication and that type of thing. Um, the other main project was about problem-based learning within maths. And actually that, again, rooted from my younger brother walking in one day while I was planning a lesson saying, what's the point of learning maths anyway and him walking off? And that became my thesis title is mathematics, what is the point? And it, I kind of came across Joe Bowler's work on looking at kind of more traditional teaching of maths and project-based learning style of teaching maths um, in her book if anyone wants to read it experiencing school mathematics but there's lots of follow-up books on that as well and that actually got me thinking about well we shouldn't really I wasn't really a fan of kind of opening up a textbook and saying here's a few examples let's work through these examples here's a methodology follow these five steps and then there you go because I realized very early on that as someone who had been in uh, the top set for maths my whole life, I actually hadn't seen what the real struggles were in maths teaching and learning. And then being exposed to such a wide variety of abilities 
um, of students and people struggling with maths and people being competent in maths, I realized that actually this method only works for those who can tap into a good memory system as well, because then you have to just learn everything, learn all the methods and implement them just whenever there's a different context. And then it got me thinking about, okay, project-based learning, let's see how we can develop that. As that developed, by this time I was in my NQT plus one year and I had the opportunity to kind of trial out the things that I was doing within my maths classes. Oh, and we got offsteaded at the same time. <laughs> Ofsted was amazing because the minute Ofsted called, everyone was like, right, so we need to have a three-part, four-part lesson. This is what should be in the first part. This is the AFL that you need to be doing. You know, it's very regimented. And I sat there on the day that I knew I was going to get observed and I went to photocopy some things. The media person said to me, you don't look too happy about Ofsted. I said, well, I'm doing project-based learning with my students. And now I have to abandon that to follow the structure so that we get a good Ofsted. All you teachers out there know what it's like when Ofsted call. Everyone goes in this hyper crazy mode and they're like, it needs to be perfect. And actually, I felt that quite restricting and quite limited. So he said to me that, um, you know what my advice is, do whatever you feel comfortable doing and what you've been doing over the last few weeks. Because your students are clearly learning from that method, so why would you abandon it? And I remember, and at the time, this was unheard of, and I guess it'd probably still be unheard of. I went back to my classroom. I rewrote my lesson plan by hand on a printed out template because there was no time to type things up. And the lady came in to observe the lesson and she saw these students engaged with, we were doing enlargement and their task for the session was they needed to create a logo a bit of a background I need to tell you here. They were all in small businesses, okay? That was one of the projects they were working on. So they had to create a logo that would be suitable for a product, but also suitable for a leaflet and a billboard. And one of the questions that came out was, can we use the same size logo in each one of these different um, things? And they all turned and said, no, you can't because of the fact that, you know, you won't be able to see it if it's on a billboard and so on. As the discussions progress and they kind of got stuck into the learning, this woman comes to her and goes, brilliant, brilliant, this is what we want. We want students talking about the maths that they're using and applying it in context. And I got talking to her and she said, you know, are others doing this? And I said, well, we do have, we are having conversations about this, but I don't know how much of an influence I can be. And she actually spoke to the head of the department and said, look, this is what you need to be doing to engage more students so that they can apply the knowledge they learn. And that's when I started thinking, well, how can I influence more people? Became a head of maths. Became a head of maths and I realized you can influence your own team, but how can I influence more people? Because people were still moving to the more traditional side of teaching maths, which is, Here's one example, here's three examples, here's lots of sums, that's you learning maths. And someone suggested to me, why not kind of train teachers? <laughs> and there was an opportunity that came out and I actually spoke to my mentor, so uh, my tutor from university. And I said, do you think, and she'd been kind of, I'd been in conversations with her anyway. And she said, you know what, with the things that you've done over the last few years, and it was a very short space of time, so not like you with like kind of like 13 years of doing it, it was only about four years and I had kind of done a lot of different things in those four years and taken lots of responsibility of um, various roles in four years as well. And she said, I think you've got the right skill set, but you're also still engaged in the research to come in and do um, take on this role as teacher trainer. And I haven't looked back since. And so I've been in teacher training 
I've worked across four, this is my fourth university. So, uh, the last 13 years I've been doing this. And I realized that actually these, there were so many people in different schools that had the same mindset, but they were struggling. They could kind of, it was within their own classroom that they could do kind of more um, using and applying the maths, but not necessarily within whole departments until the new maths curriculum came out and everything was about problem solving. And then there were people who kind of came to me and said, can you support us? Because it's a big change from what we're used to. And those kind of discussions carried on. And I realized it was a bigger influence that you could have to kind of share research. So I'm not saying I was telling them what to do, but it was about dissemination of research and the ways to kind of think about teaching uh, maths. That's really interesting, actually. Um, so, okay, so they're, they're different experiences and they're slightly different journeys to the same place. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what unites those journeys, though, is that idea about the role of the subject, what, what is knowledge, how does it work, how do we influence the practice of others, but, but also what, what, is, what is an authentic maths classroom yeah. or what is maths in a kind of authentic sense or in a practical sense? You know, in my case, what is social science or humanities in an authentic sense? Um, so, I mean, we use the phrase, obviously, oracy is, is a big thing now, right? It yeah. has been for a while. And, you know, we've been talking about speaking like and thinking like a historian or speaking like and thinking like a geographer for years. And, you know, that's in a lot of um, very credible research. But but the, the role of the subject association in supporting people to grow and develop their skills, I think, is significant. Exactly. Um, but, but actually, it's also about subject imagination, isn't it? So, yeah, you know, exactly. what, is, what is a mathematical imagination in your case? Or what is a, a sociological or a historical or geography, geographic imagination in my place? And how do we draw that out from learners in the confines of a classroom in an hour on, a, you know, once a week or twice a week or, you know, whatever it might be? with the resources we've got, yet how do we capture learners' imaginations and get them to think through the lens of the subject that we're teaching? Um, that's that's the, the challenge, isn't it? That um, is the challenge. And I think one of the bigger things that I will kind of put out there is actually at 21, 22, when I qualified as a teacher, I was still living at home with my parents. I had no other responsibilities on my shoulder. I had the time to invest in doing exactly what I wanted to do within my classroom. And as life has changed and other things have crept in, you realize that time or not having enough time influences so much and it influences what you can and can't do and how much you can kind of research into making your lessons more creative or more engaging. And there, the, the range of trainees that we get um, at UBL and in other institutions I've worked in, People are coming in with families and responsibilities and mortgages and bills to pay. And you sit there and you think, how do you make the time to even train as a teacher? And I've put people and I've had people in the past as well who do. Well, I've put the kids to sleep and now I'm going to spend the next four or five hours well into the night doing my planning and doing my kind of being more creative. And that's one of the things that and we will be talking about kind of work life balance in um, a little while as well. But one of the things that I think was easy for me and why it was easy for me to kind of sit there and spend that time. Firstly, obviously, 
doing a master's if anyone's interested do it it really does open up your mind to lots of other areas of your own subject area but in teaching as a whole and that actually those conversations because it wasn't just other maths educators it was people from primary secondary colleges anyone and everyone was on those master's courses you have those conversations and you realize actually i've actually got the time the luxury of time to sit here and invest in this and think about what is a better way of teaching this same topic and how can I get my students to engage or how can I get my kind of um, lower ability students who are struggling with some of the basic concepts to re-engage and support them and help them. The other thing I have to say is, and I, I used to actually advise trainees to do this, that in your first couple of years as a trainee, if your aim is to move up, and progress you will have to spend additional voluntarily voluntary time on taking on other responsibilities and kind of offering yourself for whatever opportunities come your way so i remember within the first few months some um the head of department said well we need someone to be the it representative for maths and i was like yeah i'll do that because that's another thing that i can put on my cv and then it was well we need someone to work with the borough co there were borough coordinators at the time i don't know if they exist anymore but at that time there were borough coordinators they worked with all the schools in the borough usually head of departments used to join with them but the head of department was like Anika you're already doing research why don't you go along went along we created this um, interactive um, curriculum content with resources and the interactivity of it was the fact that we had hyperlinked other documentation in it with other resources but it was kind of looking at these other responsibilities and and not doing it for the sake of progression I'll be honest with you it wasn't done with the intention of moving into teacher education we had a few trainees who came in and it was like, oh, well, I've recently trained, I can help you. But it was investing that time that I had or the free periods that I had or the lunch break that I had to kind of do all these things. The other thing that I will say, though, because it was a very interesting debate on marking just yesterday on Teachers Talk Radio, but also online, was your workload has a big impact on what you can and can't do within breaks and lunches and all sorts. And I felt that actually me marking my students' books was relatively straightforward because it was maths. Because it was at the, I wasn't marking long essays and it was simple right or wrong and then some comments on how to improve or examples of what had gone wrong and whatever else. But I used to commit to coming in half an hour or 45 minutes earlier than when everyone else did every day to get the, that marking done and kind of give feedback to those students so that they knew how they could improve and progress and stuff. And think looking at my kind of peers, English teachers or history teachers, or those who had much larger marking loads, and they're sitting there marking through these essays and everything. And I was like, I don't know how people do do it. Um, Warren, if you could give tips or advice for our listeners who were coming into this profession or who were already established within the school environment and wanted to move into teacher education, what advice or tips would you give them? I think it's about developing intentionality, developing security over one's own practice, which doesn't mean, isn't the same as meaning I'm brilliant and every lesson I teach is brilliant because we know that's actually not possible. Yeah. But having a sense of I want this because 
you know, in my lessons, I want to teach like this, and this is the reason why, and these are the decisions that I'm making. Yeah. To have those decisions located in practice experience and situated in the context of the school, but also at the same time situated in research. Yeah. To make huge reaching, reach out to their subject association um, and other types of teaching associations to develop networks, talk to people, go to conferences, offer workshops, um, you, you know, make kind of contributions. I mean, you know, I, I mean, look at Twitter for an example. Look at the look at yeah. the dominance of subject associations and the the way in which people do things and make presentations and offer resources to others. So get involved in that, and then actually, I think what you have to do is you have to actually mentor um, training teachers yourselves, don't you? Yes. Um, yeah, because you're almost precluded from being a teacher educator at interview if you haven't yourself had extensive experience of mentoring others. Um, I'd also recommend you have just, you've kind of named me as a, I don't know, as a, as a kind of, um, a, I don't know what the word would be, named me as a, a champion of action research, which is, <laughs> which is you know, there's, there's many more learned and clever and amazing people out there than I am who are, who are champions of action research. But, but actually, to, to get involved in, in research, you know, that yeah. might be through a master's, that might be, through, again, through a subject association, it might be writing for a teacher journal or for a more academic journal, um, it might be doing a piece of research and then sharing it within the school community. But, but something which takes that intentionality, takes that decision-making about practice and just takes it to that next level. And actually, I think they, they are the skill sets or they are the experiences that over time build into um, higher education or teacher education. The, the problem is, you know, why would you want to leave the schools? Because you're right, it's about impact. But, but, you know, every time I go into schools, I sit there at the back of someone else's class and just think, oh, I just wish I was doing this still. Oh, I totally um, agree with actually. you. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Completely agree with you. The minute you're in a classroom with young children and you see what people are um, kind of doing and how they're engaging and how they're interested in things, it really does make me want to go back as well. The only thing, and I've mentioned this to people before as well, the only thing that stops me from going back in is the fact that I forgot how early teachers need to be in schools. <laughs> I think it's been 13 years. I'm not quite trained well enough to be there that early anymore. Um, but you're right, Warren. Well, that's... Um, that. Okay, so that goes back to time again, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So I, I've been... You know, while you were talking, I was thinking about. Obviously, I was I was listening to you. Know, obviously, <laughs> obviously, I was listening to you. But I was really, really listening to you and just thinking about um, that idea of time. So, you know, history gives us theorization around time. Geography has um, theories of space and place. And yeah. within that, there is a kind of temporal dimension. But I guess in, in my subject of sociology, 
time is an almost neglected category of analysis. In fact, only recently there's been some special issues of some sociological journals using time as a category for sociological analysis. You know, we, we yeah. talk about class, we talk about gender, we talk about sort of sexuality, um, but we don't tend to talk about time. But there are some, there are some hugely significant works in the past that do so. So teaching is a is a temporal experience, isn't it? Um, exactly. You know, it has a very pattern. It has a very particular rate. Um, time works differently at different times of the year. Um, it's probably one of the, the only job I can think of where everyone leaves work at the same time for the same holidays. <laughs> but I, I, no, but seriously, I can't think it's of any true. other professional job because. You know, there might be da- there might be times where your product is in market, and so more people take holidays because it's a freer time of the year. Or it might be that offices manage holidays because different people can't all be off at the same time. But that idea about all one, everyone collectively, an organisation moving through the year, heading towards the same date at the same time, where everyone kind of stops the year, that's got to be quite unique. But at the same time, it's got to be the only job that I can think of. I mean, hospitals have routines as well, but the only job I can think of where you are so, so structured by a timetable that actually it becomes an almost like normalised part of professional existence. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of odd, right? Timetables are odd, but... As a trainee teacher, you experience time differently, don't you? An hour's lesson, you're halfway through your first task after the starter, <laughs> and suddenly the lesson's over, and you sit there standing there thinking, hang on, what? that wasn't an hour, surely, you know. Um, so, so time is, is a key, key part of the teacher experience, isn't it? Yeah, and lack of time as well. Um, we are going to move into a short ad break. Because <laughs> we've run out of time. <laughs> And we will be right back. But if you do have any comments or any tips and advice for newly qualified teachers, or if you've got any questions about how to get into teacher education, by all means, please do text us. Or if you're listening to this on playback, please do tweet us at TT Radio 2022 and we'll get back to you. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondleletters.org.uk.
Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full, free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Wales, a cross-party Senate committee report has said 38% of councils do not have enough childcare for disabled children anywhere in their area. The government in Wales has said that work is underway to expand funding. Mags, a mother of a seven-year-old with autism, told BBC Politics Wales that multiple settings have told her that they could not provide the care he needed and she struggled to find funding. She said... I've got comments of this is not the right setting for him or this is not the right setup for your child. It is a constant struggle to feel like you are doing the best for your child. The Welsh Government said, We provide more than £1.5 million a year in support of children with additional needs within the childcare offer and grants of up to 10000 are available to make settings accessible. This year, we have also allocated £5 for local authorities to create accessible play opportunities. In Scotland, the Education Secretary, Shirley Ann Somerville, has been asked to explain how exams can be held fairly, following the news that one in eight pupils were absent from school last week. There were 32,000 pupils absent from school for COVID-related reasons in Scotland on Wednesday. Nearly 2,500 teachers were also absent from work. Ms Somerville has said that she will provide extra support for pupils who have missed school, but exams will go ahead. National fives and hires in the spring will only be cancelled if COVID makes it impossible for pupils to gather in exam rooms. Larry Flanagan of the EIS Teachers Union said it was essential that students were treated fairly 
and not disadvantaged by COVID isolation. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, as we approach Safe Internet Day next week, it's the 8th of February, if you didn't know, I'm going to take a look at keeping yourself safe as a teacher. I'm not going to go into your digital footprint or how you use social media. That's been covered in your safeguarding training, no doubt, and should be common sense. There is, however, a real grey area when it comes to teachers and using their phones in school. Before a start, all schools should have a policy on mobile phones, and you should have read it. I suggest, if you're not sure what it is, then you find out. There is DFE guidance for searching, screening and confiscating for pupils. For staff, policies in schools range from SLT having different rules to other staff so they can be contacted, to phones must be switched off or on silence when pupils are present. Some are even introducing a smartwatch policy as they become increasingly more popular. The first step to keeping yourself safe is to make sure you know what is expected in your school, as it's the individual schools that decide and there is no official guidance. The next step is a choice. Images, still or moving, are a great way to evidence work and to feedback to pupils. If your policy allows it, using your phone is the simplest way, as it's always with you. To give a real example, a PE teacher at a match doesn't need to remember to take the school camera and probably has a better camera on their phone anyway. But here's the dilemma. Should teachers have pictures of children on their personal phones? Again, school policy will dictate this and parents will have signed a form saying they give permission or not, so you're covered to take the picture, but the question still stands, should it be done on a personal device? This is where I feel the need to keep ourselves safe lies. How long do you keep the images on your phone? Are they automatically backed up into your personal cloud? How do you transfer from your device to the school storage? What if your phone's lost or stolen? I'm not here to provide an answer. I just want you to think about keeping yourself safe. If you take images on a school device, you avoid all of these issues. It may be a little more effort, but in the rare event of an allegation, it's a lot simpler to investigate. Please think about your use of personal devices in school. And if your policy isn't keeping up with what you're doing, consider raising it. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2020 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to the drive home with me, Anika Khalid. It is Tuesday, 1st February. We've just gone past 5pm and we are unfortunately in our our final segment for this afternoon. Honestly, the last hour has gone so quickly. Um, This next segment, we'll be talking about work-life balance and we'll be talking about the um controversial i want to say some people have been against it some people have been very much for it but the new four day week that's currently being piloted um warren what are you going to be doing in the break thank you um let me paint the picture for you then um i have a lovely lovely fresh pot of coffee in front of me steaming away it smells delicious um, I have a sparkling water because in my mind that makes me sophisticated. Um, I also have a 25 kilogram Labrador currently lying on my legs, um, destroying um, systematically my favourite trainers. Unfortunately, my feet are still in them um, <laughs> and it's actually becoming quite painful. 
at this moment in time. But, but you know, the, the, the show must go on, right? So, so that's how you're go. spending your breaks every time we go to the news. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Um, <clears throat> there's you kind of having your me time, essentially, with you and your dog. Right, let's move into, have you heard, um, firstly, Warren, have you heard about the proposed four-day week and the pilot that's going uh, on? I have, yeah. You have, okay. So um, I've got a article, for those of you who are not sure, I've taken the article from Business Insider and I'll just give you a bit of a brief. Um, the campaign director for the four-day week is Joe Ryle um, and Basically, there's a six-month pilot that's being run by Four Day Week Global, which is a non-profit in conjunction with um, Autonomy and uh, Campaign Group Four Day Week UK and academics from Oxford and Cambridge Universities, as well as Boston College in the US. The premise is that we reduce the 40-hour week which obviously brings up lots of questions about what everyone's week looks like firstly, but reducing the 40 hour week um, to, I think it was about 35, but and kind of share it in the four days and not lose pay as a result. Now, Warren, <laughs> what are your thoughts about this? Because there have been a range of very strong opinions on Twitter about the four day week and how it's not really gonna be easy to implement this across professions um, in different, um, with people working 12 hour shifts and stuff and if essentially they're working a 60 hour week, how is that gonna work? Um, lots of people saying that you can't kind of carry this out within a school environment. However, one of our local schools, Forest Gate Community, have actually managed to reduce their week to four and a half days and they've successfully managed this and it's been better for the staff well-being student well-being and just overall productivity and actually their aim is to reduce down to a four-day week so what are your thoughts just off the bat what are your thoughts initially about the four-day week thank you um Okay, so these are going to be jumbled, <laughs> okay? Um, firstly, it depends four days for whom. Because you could, I, I mean, this is beyond my mathematical imagination, right, to use a, a kind of term from earlier, but it could be the case that pupils, uh, learners, students are there five days a week, but teaching staff aren't. So there could be a, a rotor, whereby yeah. schools remain open for five days, but some teachers are not there one day. Now, that raises issues about complexities of timetable. Yeah. Um, it also raises issues about um, student-staff ratios and, and the, you know, the consequences of, of sort of safe schooling. Um, I, I guess, I, I mean, COVID shows us this, right? I, I guess if we... We have to remember what the functions of schools and schooling are. Yeah. So it seems that the world has only just noticed because of COVID that schooling has this kind of really important function for young people's well-being yeah. and sociability, like as if somehow we didn't know that and now we, we've noticed because of COVID, oh, young people don't go to school, that's detrimental. You know, of course it is. Um, 
But actually, if you think about in England, the origins of schooling, obviously schools have existed for thousands upon thousands of years and also in other places around the globe as well. But, you know, schooling in England is a product of industrialisation and is actually a product of, um, on the one hand, a literate workforce, but on the other hand, effectively a child-minding role to free up people to go out to work for what eventually becomes the beginnings of international capitalism. Yeah. Um, well, that, that kind of still is needed, isn't it? I'm not saying that's a good thing, but, but you know, we know from COVID that as soon as children are at home, the economy and productivity has a massive consequence. And so actually a four-day week where pupils are only at school four days a week, that, that's got to have some far, far-reaching consequences, hasn't it? See, I have a different opinion about this then, because in, and as a result because of COVID as well. Now, I think the struggles in COVID, apart from the fact that COVID existed and there was all of that side of it, it was the fact that everything was closed. So in my mind, when I'm thinking four-day week, I'm thinking, imagine the whole UK runs on a four-day week. Um, with things like emergency services and they'd be on rotation. So you'd have four days on, four days off, essentially, where people kind of, so you still have, you're covered 24 hours a day and uh, 365 days in the year. Um, But essentially everyone would have a four day week. And if I'm thinking from, from the student's perspective, the reason if people argue for moving from um, schooling in the school to homeschooling is because they want a richer curriculum and they feel like the curriculum that's offered within schools isn't rich enough for their children or because the children have specific um, interests or because that environment isn't supporting them grow and there's other issues going on so they may choose to take them out of school um and actually if we did have a four-day school week it would mean that you've got the three days. And if parents were also only expected to work for four days of the week, you'd have your three days for a lot more enrichment activities, a lot more kind of cultural activities. You get the, you don't have that um, Friday evening exhaustion, Saturday doing all the chores that you've neglected Monday to Friday because you're also working. And then the Sunday dread before you go back to work on Monday. And for teachers, it's not even just the Sunday dread. It's actually the Sunday for planning and preparing and doing bits and pieces before you kind of go back into lessons on the Monday. Um, A lot of the arguments online were the fact that, well, you know, would that not just mean that you're still using your Friday, doing your planning and teaching and all sorts of stuff, Um, which got me thinking then, well, maybe what we need to do is still have a four day teaching week but then on the friday staff can use a work so they're paid for it they get the work day to do their planning marking whatever else students can engage with what we would at university level have a wednesday afternoon to kind of engage with societies activities clubs sports and all of that stuff and they can do that on the fridays um where for the babysitting purposes or whatever else you still would know that there's a place where they'd go but they're getting kind of um more more richer learning experiences um outside of that i do have to also say and i know it will be difficult especially if you think about it if i'm a parent and i work in the nhs and i'm on a four day on four day off type of um rotation 
my four days could essentially be the <laughs> Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, in which case you're still going to need childcare support there anyway. But when I think about this, having worked both full-time and part-time, part-time benefits were a much better work-life balance, essentially. More opportunity for me to invest in myself um, and whether that was for personal growth or professional growth, more time to do the things that I wanted to do in that. The only time it became an issue was if uh, workplaces were trying to get you to work your five-day week within a three-day part-time contract, which obviously it, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense because then you're financially worse off. But I think there is a place for reducing the kind of you need to go to a school building to learn. Um, I was, ironically, I was very much pro-homeschooling. Um, had the little one. She's only two. She's going to be three this month. And she is in school three days a week because working from home is difficult with a child. And in an ideal world, it would make sense to kind of homeschool and do all that stuff. But then we live in London. Finances play a big part in having the having to work. And if you said to me, any kind of money which is no object, would you still be working full time and whatever? No, I wouldn't be. And I would actually probably be more flexible with my little one's learning as well. And I would say, you know what, three days a week is enough to keep me fulfilled and keep my brain engaged in other things and research and stuff. And actually, the rest of the week, I think, should be dedicated to kind of family time or her and her development and whatever else. And obviously, that would change as kids grow older and whatever else. But I really do think there's a place for it. I just think that the way it's currently being piloted, it doesn't work for every industry. So it kind of goes back to, well, it is about life-work balance. It is also about how schools do or don't fit into and contribute to the economy as a whole. I mean, I'm clearly not suggesting that the most important function of schooling is, is, is babysitting, you know, not in any way. Um, but it also goes back to that issue of time, doesn't it? Because if you are teaching a four-day week, um, what does that mean for curriculum coverage and what does that mean for like cognitive maturation of children? Um, but there are ways of working around that, which what might be to extend the school day or might be to actually decrease um, the length of holidays. So the idea being that you don't get six weeks off in the summer, but you, you actually get, say, four weeks off in the summer, but you've had one whole day off every week forever but 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 the important thing is that we know that give teachers a three-day weekend and they'll still work through it um <laughs> and, and that's 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 where it, you know that that's where it's not great okay that's yeah. where it, it kind of doesn't work um i think well I so think how the do other we address issue, how do we address the issue of the work-life balance because of so many of our teachers come in we train them they go into schools and within a few years they're out of there saying not enough pay 
too much workload, too much pressures on us to be working extended hours. And in some places they are drawn in with higher salaries offered as, um, you know, uh, ECTs, they're called that, right? Um, Early career teachers. But actually there's an expectation that you need to stay on school premises until a certain time. And so how do we alleviate that pressure? Because I'm telling you more and more each year we've got trainees coming in who are struggling with health well-being and they need a balance which works well because our lives are so fast paced and actually the way that this world is and we're so easily con- um easily contacted mainly because of technology because it is an email or 10 every other day telling you to do 10 or 15 other things that you need to be doing. So what do we do to readdress this balance? So what we need to do is to avoid um, school institutional, I, I guess the word would be post-Fordist cultures, you know, so we have to avoid the plug-in, plug-out, cogs in a machine approach to viewing staff in an organisation. Yeah. Now, some teacher attrition has been directly set up itself by some roots into teaching because there are some roots in teaching which offer the promise um, to you know become a teacher teach for a few years and then deliberately use that experience to go and get another job somewhere yeah. else and that's how they're set up and sold um, actually no, we, we know don't we we know right as professionals that those kind of softer skills the skills around nurturing, supporting, valuing, building communities amongst the young, um, having the young feel that they're being looked after, accommodated, given a voice. We know that sometimes we don't apply those rules to ourselves um, as a profession in organisations. The kind of codification of audit cultures also kind of add increased pressure, um, as do league tables and yeah. those sorts of um, measures. Um, but, but actually, avoidance of plug-in, plug-out cultures and enabling teachers to feel that they can grow, flourish, develop, and that there is a professionalism, a professional regard for teachers and the work they do, that might begin to shift to a certain extent some of those um, feelings of negativity that people in the system have. Yeah. And is there any way that we can reduce that workload? Is it self-inflicted because of the structures that we have created? And that's another quite interesting question to have as well. That is it the way it is because of the schooling system and how we've created it and the curriculum, the fact that it exists in the way that it exists. And yeah, totally. Because, because schooling cultures and the circumstances around work and the conditions of work in other um, places around the world play out quite differently to how they do well i mean they even play out quite differently within the united kingdom let alone in in, in you know in england as a whole um those things play out quite quite differently elsewhere yeah it's interesting do you think we could implement a four-day week say within colleges or higher educational institutions 
Oh, it'd be so good, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I think I actually think I think I think that that colleges and, and higher education institutions are more likely to be able to do it. To be fair, because of the legalities around the age of the learners yeah. and also the logistics around time timetabling. So I actually think that it's more likely that, say, further education and higher education could do it and probably less likely that early years, primary and secondary could do it, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And actually, if you think about the way our weeks um, work within higher education, so we currently have, and I think we've had since COVID happened, actually, was no meeting Fridays, which actually uh, reduces that pressure of kind of uh, last minute meetings on a Friday with lots of actions that you need to be covering. Um, I'd say personally, if we could Well, offer... no one's told me that. Quite... <laughs> well, there was an email, Warren. <laughs> Check your email. Um, uh, personally, what I would suggest is the way I've got around it, because I think initially when um, smartphones came out and I got my first one, as a teacher educator, for anyone who doesn't know, we, apart from teaching within the university, you go around and you observe and assess your trainee teachers across London. Um, and there can be a lot of dead time for that, so travel time. If you're not on the underground, it's there is a lot of travel time involved. And for me, ha having done like a school visit or two and then have, having to go back home or to the office to then catch up on emails or admin and stuff was just so tedious. So when I did invest in a smartphone, apart from the fact that it had maps on it, because I will get lost if there's no map in front of me, um, the fact that I could multitask or the fact that I could use my travel time and catch up on emails and other kind of troubleshooting issues that come in on queries for mentors and saved me time. Now, a lot of people seem to be doing things like this where you've got your emails and every notifications on on your phone and you're constantly kind of, we've also got your Teams or Zoom notifications on your phone. And there came a point when I, I remember a few years ago, I was due to go on holiday and both my husband and I said, right, we're going to turn off all notifications. And I physically remember my hands feeling like I need to kind of be typing. And I aimlessly typed in a message just for the sake of feeling like I was doing something. And I realized, yeah, something's not right here. This shouldn't be happening. So my one advice and tip to anyone who feels like this obligation to respond straight away to emails and respond straight away to notifications that come up is get rid of your emails and everything else on your phone okay i was in a time when we didn't have I, when i was first became a teacher there was no emails or anything else going around we literally got a few post-it notes on our desks when we came into school and that's when we kind of actioned those things not outside of it so that would be my top tip is turn off your notifications for all the work-related stuff your time should be your time Warren your thoughts I, I agree actually I mean, I, I mean I've increasingly adopted two rules the first rule is exactly what you've just said to not have um, work-related messages come through on mobile devices yeah but the the other thing I've tried to do is to 
the first, I mean, I get up quite early, but, but the first hour of my working day, I try to be about sort of personal growth and pleasure. So yeah. that might be, I really want to plan that, that, plan that lesson because I'm really excited about it. Or it might be, I'm going to make a podcast today. Or it might even be, actually, I'm going to read that chapter of that book because I, I need it for something I'm writing later in the week. But, you know, to really focus on on my growth and my development for even just for an hour a day to turn off devices. But, but you see, I, I, I actually think that we, we work in an organization which is genuinely culturally very different from where it was a good few years ago, yep, where well-being and, you know, care and regard for staff is is like a real real dominant message at the moment so actually it is about individuals making individual decisions but it's also about institutions changing cultures and developing more what i guess we could call a culture of care um towards staff rather than a culture of like cogs in the machine yes and i completely agree with you there as well We are actually coming to the end of our show for this um, Tuesday drive home. It is 5.27. Thank you so much, uh, Warren, for joining me today. And thank you to everyone who's been um, listening in today or if you're watching or listening in on playback as well. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure to host the Tuesday drive home. Um, Warren, thank you once again for helping me today. And we are looking forward to Warren's show, first show, which will be on? I think it's scheduled. I, I'm taking on the, this slot, but on a Friday night, but every other week. And I think it's scheduled for the 25th of Feb. But um, thank you very much for having me. I, you know, I really no, it's not a problem. Um, I'll be back at the same time next Tuesday talking about all things education, well-being and whatever else we end up talking about. So please do join me at 4 p.m. on Teachers Talk Radio. Have a great week ahead and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.